Hello and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. James Kenny here, and this is episode number 34, entitled The Big Fellow, Michael Collins, 1890 to 1922, pre-Anglo-Irish Treaty. This is about Michael Collins and his role in Ireland's fight for freedom pre the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921. I hope you like this and that you will share it with others on social media. Michael Collins, 1890 to 1922, was an Irish revolutionary, soldier and politician who fought at the GPO Dublin in 1916 and was to become a leading figure afterwards in the struggle for Irish independence. He was chairman of the provisional government of the Irish Free State from January 1922 and commander-in-chief of the Free State Army from July until his death in an ambush in August 1922, during the Irish Civil War. Michael Collins was born in Woodfield, near Clannacilty, County Cork, the youngest of eight children. His father, Michael John, 1816 to 1897, was a farmer who had been a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Michael was six years old when his father died. His nickname, The Big Fellow, was established by his teens long before he became a political or military leader. His brother-in-law, Patrick O'Driscoll, founded the newspaper called The West Cork People, and Collins, at the age of 13, helped out with general reporting and preparing the paper for issue. Leaving school at 15, Collins took the British Civil Service examination in Cork in February 1906 and moved to the home of his sister, Hanny, in London, where he became a boy clerk in the Post Office Savings Bank at Blythe House. In 1910, he became a messenger at the London firm of stockbrokers, Horn and Company. While living in London, he studied law at King's College, but did not finish. He joined the London GAA and through this, the IRB. Sam Maguire, a Republican from Dunmanway, County Cork, introduced the 19-year-old Collins to the IRB. In 1915, he moved to work in the Guarantee Trust Company of New York, where he remained until his return to Ireland the following year, joining Craig Gardner and Company, a firm of accountants in Dawson Street, Dublin, as a part-time clerk. Believed to be an organiser of considerable intelligence, Collins had become highly respected in the IRB. This led to his appointment as financial advisor to Count Plunkett, father of one of the Easter Rising's organisers, Joseph Plunkett. Collins took part in preparing arms and drilling troops for the rebellion. The Rising was Collins' first appearance in national events. When it commenced on Easter Monday 1916, Collins served as Joseph Plunkett's aide-de-camp at the rebellion's headquarters in the General Post Office in Dublin. There he fought alongside Patrick Pierce, James Connolly, and other leaders of the Rising. Following the surrender, Collins was arrested and taken into British custody. He was processed at Dublin's Richmond Barracks by G-men, plainclothes officers from Dublin Metropolitan Police. During his screening, 
Collins was identified as someone who should be selected for further interrogation, harsher treatment, or even execution. However, he overheard his name being called out. He moved to the other side of the building to identify the speaker. In doing so, he joined the group that was transferred to Frongok internment camp in Wales, a movement that historian Tim Pak Coogan describes as one of the luckiest escapes of his life. Collins first began to emerge as a major figure in the vacuum created by the executions of the 1916 leadership. He began hatching plans for next time, even before the prison ships left Dublin. At Frangog in Wales, he was one of the organisers of a programme of protest and non-cooperation with authorities. The camp proved an excellent opportunity for networking with Republicans from all over the country, of which he became a key organiser. Public outcry placed pressure on the British government to end the internment, and in December 1916, the Frangok prisoners were sent home. The first signatory of the 1916 proclamation, and widely considered the Rising's foremost organiser, Tom Clark, before his death, had designated his wife Kathleen Clark as the official caretaker of rising official business. In the event that the leadership did not survive, by June 1916, Mrs. Clark had sent out the first post-rising communique to the IRB, declaring the rising to be only the beginning and directing nationalists to prepare for the next blow. Soon after his release, Mrs. Clark appointed Michael Collins as secretary to the National Aid and Volunteers Dependence Fund and subsequently passed on to him the secret organisational information and contacts which she had held in trust for the independence movement. Michael Collins thus became one of the leading figures in the post-rising independence movement, spearheaded by Arthur Griffith, editor publisher of the main nationalist newspaper, The United Irishman. Griffith's organisation, Sinn Féin, had been founded in 1905 as an umbrella group to unify all the various factions within the nationalist movement. Under Griffith's policy, Collins and other advocates of the physical force approach to independence gained the cooperation of Sinn Féin while agreeing to disagree with Griffith's moderate ideas of a dual monarchy solution based on the Hungarian model, by October 1917, Collins had risen to become a member of the executive of Sinn Féin and director of Organisation for the Irish Volunteers. Eamon de Valera, another veteran of 1916, stood for the presidency of Sinn Féin against Griffith, who stepped aside and supported de Valera's presidency. In the 1918 general elections, Sinn Féin swept the polls throughout much of Ireland, with many seats uncontested, and formed an overwhelming parliamentary majority in Ireland. Like many senior Sinn Féin representatives, Michael Collins was elected as an MP for Cork South, with the right to sit in the House of Commons of the United Kingdom in London. Unlike their rivals in the Irish Parliamentary Party, Sinn Féin MPs had announced that they would not take their seats in Westminster, 
but instead would set up an Irish Parliament in Dublin. In 1918, Michael Collins was made an Adjutant General of the Irish Volunteers. With this role came the duty of travelling the country to organise the Irish Volunteers. In March of that year, Collins was in County Longford to make a speech. After Mass on Sunday, approximately 300 people gathered in the Longford village of Lega to hear what he had to say. Collins read aloud from an Irish Volunteer General Order which called on people to resist conscription by any means possible. Collins decided to add his own few words to the order when he encouraged people to raid places such as RIC stations for arms. The speech drew rapturous applause from those in Lega, but word of this seditious speech made its way to the Longford County Inspector, and a warrant for the arrest of the man who delivered the speech was made. Collins was arrested on the 2nd of April in Dublin City by Detectives O'Brien and Bruton from Dublin Castle as he was walking into his office at 32 Bachelors Quay. A crowd had assembled and threatened to harm those arresting Collins, but he spoke with them and calmed the situation before he was sent on a train to Longford and spent three weeks in Sligo Jail. Eamon de Valera appointed Michael Collins as Minister for Finance in the Provisional Government of Dáil Éireann in 1919. Most of the ministries existed only on paper or as one or two people working in a room of a private house. Given the circumstances of war in which they were liable to be arrested or killed by the Royal Irish Constabulary, British Army, Black and Tans or Auxiliaries, Despite that, Collins managed to produce a finance ministry that was able to organise a large bond issue in the form of a national loan to fund the new Irish Republic. According to Bat O'Connor, the Dáil loan raised almost £400,000 sterling, of which 25000 was in gold. The loan, which was declared illegal by the British, was lodged in the individual bank accounts of the trustees. The gold was kept under the floor of O'Connor's house until 1922. The Russian Republic, in the midst of its own civil war, ordered Ludwig Martins, the head of the Soviet Bureau in New York City, to acquire a national loan from the Irish Republic through Harry Boland, and they offered some crown jewels as collateral. The jewels remained in a Dublin house until 1938 when they were handed over to Eamon de Valera. Eventually, on the 13th of September 1949, the Russian loan was repaid and the Jews returned. Before the Dáil's first meeting, Collins, tipped off by his network of spies, warned his colleagues of plans to arrest all its members in overnight raids. Eamon de Valera and others ignored the warnings on the argument that if the arrests happened, they would constitute a propaganda coup. The intelligence proved accurate, and de Valera, along with Sinn Féin MPs who followed his advice, were arrested. Michael Collins and others evaded arrest. The new parliament, called Dáil Éireann, meaning Assembly of Ireland, met in the Mansion House Dublin in January 1919. In de Valera's absence, Cahill Brua was elected Prime Minister. The following April, 
Michael Collins engineered Eamon de Valera's escape from Lincoln Prison in England, after which Cahill Brewer was replaced as president by Eamon de Valera. No country gave diplomatic recognition to the 1919 Irish Republic, despite strong lobbying in Washington and at the Paris Peace Conference by de Valera and prominent Irish Americans. The Irish War of Independence, in effect, began on the day that the first Dáil convened, the 21st of January 1919. On that date, an ambush party of IRA volunteers from the 3rd Tipperary Brigade, including Seamus Robinson, Dan Breen, Sean Tracy and Sean Hogan, attacked two Royal Irish Constabulary men, who were escorting a consignment of gelignite to a quarry in Salahed Beg, County Tipperary. The two policemen were shot dead during the engagement. This ambush is considered the first action in the Irish War of Independence. The engagement had no advance authorization from the Dáil. However, the support for the armed struggle soon after became official, with the Dáil ratifying the IRA's claim to be the army of the Irish Republic. From that time, Michael Collins filled a number of roles in addition to his legislative duties. That summer he was elected president of the IRB and in September he was made director of intelligence of the Irish Republican Army, which now had a mandate to pursue an armed campaign as the official military of the Irish nation. With Cahill Brua as Minister of Defence, Collins became director of organisation and adjutant general of the volunteers. Collins spent much of this period helping to organise the volunteers as an effective military force and concentrating on forcing the RIC, which represented British authority in Ireland, out of isolated barracks and seizing their weapons. Michael Collins was determined to avoid the massive destruction, military and civilian losses for merely symbolic victories that had characterised the 1916 Rising. Instead, he directed a guerrilla war against the British, suddenly attacking, then just as quickly withdrawing, minimizing losses and maximizing effectiveness. The British responded with escalation of the war, with the importation of special forces such as the Auxiliaries and Black and Tans, the Cairo Gang and others. Officially or unofficially, many of these groups were given a free hand to institute a reign of terror, shooting Irish people indiscriminately, invading homes, looting and burning. As the war began in earnest, de Valera travelled to the United States for an extended speaking tour to raise funds for the outlawed Republican government. It was in publicity for this tour that de Valera, who had been elected Prime Minister by the Dáil, was first referred to as President. While financially successful, Grave political conflicts followed in de Valera's wake there, which threatened the unity of Irish-American support for the rebels. Some members of the IRB also objected to the use of the presidential title because their organization's constitution had a different definition of that title. While back in Ireland, Collins agreed the national loan, organized the IRA, effectively led the government, and managed arms smuggling operations. Patrick O'Sullivan Green says that managing 
and raising of the national loan required more than systems and processes. Collins still needed to harangue and conjole the less energetic loan committees, and the frustration was getting to him. He told Harry Boland, This enterprise will certainly break my heart, if anything ever will. I never imagined there was so much cowardice, dishonesty, hedging, insincerity, and meanness in the world, as my experience in connection with this work has revealed. The loan was wound up three months later on the 17th of July 1920. The final amount raised was 371,849, equivalent to £22 million pounds today. The loan was oversubscribed by almost 50%. It was an outstanding success for an underground government setting up counter-state in open defiance of an established and hostile administration. The people had backed an audacious dream of self-government on a distant, ever unrealistic promise of future repayment. In 1924, the promise of the fledgling government made in 1919, the promise made by the men and women of the First Dáil, the promise in effect made by the people of Ireland themselves, was met. In that year, the Free State Government approved a plan to repay the loan in full including an interest return of 40%. The young state was sending a strong signal to international financial markets that it would honour its future sovereign obligations. Robert Briscoe was sent by Collins to Germany in 1919 to be the chief agent for procuring arms for the IRA. While in Germany in 1921, Briscoe purchased a small tugboat named Frida to be used in transporting guns and ammunition to Ireland. On the 28th of October 1921, the Frida slipped out to sea with Charles McGuinness at the helm and a German crew with a cargo of 300 guns and 20,000 rounds of ammunition. However, other sources cite this shipment as the largest military shipment ever to reach the IRA, consisting of 1,500 rifles, 2,000 pistols, and 1.7 million rounds of ammunition. Local guerrilla units received supplies, training, and had largely a free hand to develop the war in their own region. These were the Flying Columns, who comprised the bulk of the War of Independence rank and file in the Southwest. Collins, Dick McGee, and regional commanders such as Dan Breen and Tom Barry oversaw tactics and general strategy. There were also regional organisers, such as Ernie O'Malley and Liam Mellows, who reported directly to Collins at St. Ita's secret basement, GHQ, in central Dublin. They were supported by a vast intelligence network of men and women in all walks of life that reached deep into the British administration in Ireland. It was at this time that Collins created a special assassination unit called the Squad, or the Twelve Apostles, expressly to kill British agents and informers. Collins was criticised for these tactics, but cited the universal wartime practice of executing enemy spies who were, in his words, hunting victims for execution. Campaigning for Irish independence, even non-violently, was still targeted both by prosecutions under British law entailing the death penalty and also by extrajudicial killings, such as that of Thomas McCurtain 
nationalist mayor of Cork City. In 1920, the British offered £10,000, equivalent to 569,840 today, for information leading to Collins' capture or death. He evaded capture and continued to strike against British forces, often operating from safe houses near government buildings, such as Vaughan's and on Stod. In 1920, following Westminster's prominent announcements that it had the Irish insurgents on the run, Collins and his squad killed several people in a series of coordinated raids, including a number of British Secret Service agents. Members of the Royal Irish Constabulary went to Croke Park, where the GAA football match was taking place between Dublin and Tipperary. The police officers opened fire on the crowd, killing 12 and wounding 60. This event became known as Bloody Sunday. Many British operatives sought the shelter of Dublin Castle the next day. About that time, Tom Barry's 3rd Cork Brigade took no prisoners in a bitter battle with British forces at Kilmichael. In many regions, the RIC and other Crown forces became all but confined to the strongest barracks in the larger towns, as rural areas came increasingly under rebel control. These Republican victories would have been impossible without widespread support from the Irish population, which included every level of society and reached deep into the British administration in Ireland. In May 1921, elections were held in the northern part of Ireland under the 1920 Government of Ireland Act, which separated the governance of six counties in Ulster from the rest of Ireland. Michael Collins was elected to a seat in Armagh demonstrating popular support for the Republican movement. At the time of the ceasefire in July 1921, a major operation was allegedly in planning to execute every British Secret Service agent in Dublin, while a major ambush involving 80 officers and men was also planned for Temple Glantyne, County Limerick. In 1921, General McCready, commander of the British forces in Ireland, reported to his government that the Empire's only hope of holding Ireland was by martial law, including the suspension of all normal life. Westminster's foreign policy ruled out this option. Irish-American public opinion was important to British agendas in Asia. In addition, Britain's efforts at a military solution had already resulted in a powerful peace movement which demanded an end to the unrest in Ireland. Prominent voices calling for negotiation included the Labour Party, the Times and other leading periodicals, members of the House of Lords, English Catholics and famous authors such as George Bernard Shaw. Still, it was not the British government that initiated negotiations. Individual English activists, including clergy, made private overtures which reached Arthur Griffith, who expressed his welcome for dialogue. The British MP Brigadier General Cockrell sent an open letter to Prime Minister David Lloyd George that was printed in the Times, outlining how a peace conference with the Irish should be organised. The Pope made an urgent appeal for a negotiated end to violence. Whether or not Lloyd George welcomed such advisers, he could no longer hold out against the tide. In July, 
Lajor's government offered a truce. Arrangements were made for a conference between British government and the leaders of the yet unrecognised Republic. There remains uncertainty as to the two sides' capability to have carried on the conflict much longer. Collins told Hammer Greenwood, after signing the Anglo-Irish Treaty, you had us deadbeat. We could not have lasted another three weeks. When we were told of the offer of a truce, we were astonished. We thought you must have gone mad. However, he stated on the record that there will be no compromise and no negotiations with any British government until Ireland is recognised as an independent republic. The same effort that would get us Dominion Home Rule will get us a republic. At no time had the Dáil or the IRA asked for a conference or a truce. However, the Dáil as a whole was less uncompromising. It decided to proceed to a peace conference, although it was ascertained in the preliminary stages that a fully independent republic would not be on the table, and that the loss of some northeastern counties was a foregone conclusion. Many of the rebel forces on the ground first heard of the truce when it was announced in the newspapers, and this gave rise to the first fissures in nationalist unity, which had serious consequences later on. They felt they had not been included in consultations regarding its terms.